0: Hey, we're working towards the getting closer to the end of the Gospel of Mark, if you've been with us through our series. Trouble is brewing uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, the water hasn't quite yet reached full boil, but the, uh, the, the teapot's starting to hiss a little bit. Things are, are getting close. Um, and I, I would just sort of confess a, a little bit of challenge as I was preparing kind of for this uh, message this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Uh, and as I was studying and reading this week, it just kind of exposed in me sort of some presumptions that I think I just kind of carried with me about the, the sort of the week of Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem. I think a lot of my focus has gone towards the front end, uh, sort of the, the triumphal entry and things that we looked at the previous week. And then my, my mind just kind of goes to the, the, the Good Friday and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the things that we'll celebrate coming up here in a couple of weeks at, at Good Friday and Easter. But I just sort of admittedly have sort of failed to realize how much teaching Jesus does between his entry and the crucifixion. Um, and, and I would say I've sort of wrongly built a picture in my mind of Jesus kind of walking through Jerusalem with his, with his head down, knowing what's about to happen and, and just kind of waiting for the end to occur. I've sort of, I think, wrongly kind of put a, an Eeyore-like persona on Jesus as, as he was just making it to the, to the cross. Um, but the more that, that I read about it this week, the more that I sort of thought about it, uh, I think Jesus was feisty towards the end. Uh, I think he was righteously frustrated. And I think that he was well aware that his time and his influence here was short, and he had a few more things that he needed to do. So I will... I would say he, he's not like a senior in high school that's just sort of coasting with senioritis to the finish line. I get a picture of a quarterback in a big football game with two minutes to go that recognizes that time is short and each decision is very critical and each conversation is important. And so as, as we come to this time, um, that's what I see here. Now, I don't think Jesus is out picking fights, but he doesn't seem to be backing away from them either. I was just reminded this week that while Jesus goes to the cross willingly, he does not go weekly. Uh, and that's something that, that I was thinking about as I thought about these passages. Uh, this morning, uh, we're gonna look at three different uh, sort of confrontations and correction that he's gonna have with, with various groups and leaders that were there in Jerusalem. Uh, he's gonna start off with some, some religious leaders. Uh, if you have your Bible and you're in Mark chapter 12, you could follow along. But the first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna confront their continual rejection. And he's gonna do this through a parable. So picking up in chapter 12, verse one, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them and some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty handed. Then he sent another servant to them and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. And he sent many others, and some of them they beat, and others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is their heir, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Now, as we've gone through Mark, we've covered a lot of, of different parables, and there are some that require a lot of work to figure out what is going on. There are times I think Jesus teaches a parable, and we sort of get the sense that nobody there sort of has a clue what he's talking about, and it kind of goes over their heads, but this one seems pretty straightforward. It was straightforward enough that those hearing it, the the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders knew at the end that it was speaking about them and they did not like what it said. So to understand it just more and more clearly, we'll highlight a couple of the key figures that are represented in the parable. Uh, There's a landowner, uh, and that's a representative of God in the parable. There's a vineyard, which, which represents Israel and it was well taken care of and well created by the, the landowner. But then there's some tenants that, that come in to, to tend the land and they are representative of the religious leaders that were left to care for the vineyard and the needs of the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be the guides and the, the teachers and the protectors. Then there's some servants that are sent on behalf of the landowner to go collect some of the fruit from the land. And these represent the various prophets sent by God to warn Israel throughout its history as it began to wander astray. God used these prophets to continually call them back to repentance. But when the landowner in the parable sends these servants to collect what is rightfully his, the servants are attacked by the tenants. We're told that they are physically attacked, they're emotionally attacked, they're treated shamefully, and and some of them were even killed. But yet the landowner sends more and the tenants continue to reject uh, those servants. So the landowner raises the stakes. If they've ignored my servants, surely they will listen to the landowner's own son we see this as representative of, of Jesus. And I think one thing that we're to take from this, we get a beautiful picture of the loving patience of the landowner. There are multiple efforts made to restore the relationship with the people of Israel. We see a God that pursues over and over and over and over again going so far, not just to send servants, but to send his own son. And he gives the tenants every opportunity to change their ways. But they do not change their behavior. And and they actually come to a really strange conclusion about what they think will happen if they kill the son that is coming. They say, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Like they'll somehow be granted the property if the heir is murdered. it becomes theirs. And it's hard to to sort of wrestle with the irrationality that would have went in to that conclusion. But then Jesus gets to, to what's kind of the meat of this particular parable. And what I imagine was quite chilling to those that heard it. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. I think we see in this uh, parable, Jesus is teaching that God displays patience, but judgment will inevitably come. Now, sometimes people have accused God of, of being too quick to pronounce his righteous judgment, but historically, we just don't see that to be true. And others paint God as this uncaring figure that that doesn't smite nearly as often as he ought to and he just lets sin linger for far too long. This parable reminds us of that balance that God is unbelievably patient, but judgment and justice will inevitably come. Apostle Peter mentions this in, in one of his letters, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, Jesus invites us to see the story of God from God's perspective. He has been and is lovingly patient but there will come a point where those religious leaders are held responsible for their continued rejection of Jesus. They want to be Lord of their own little worlds and ignore God's role as true Lord and true judge. And they think that they can get away with it and ignore the reality that God's judgment comes in God's timing. The leaders that were there, they, they, they picked up that they were the target of these words and they didn't like it, and they, but they feared the people that were there that liked Jesus. And so they let him leave for now. But we continue and we're reading on here, picking up in verse 13, but Jesus just sort of moves right into the next interaction. And it's an interesting team up that we'll talk about with the Herodians and the Pharisees as they work on a trick question to trap Jesus about taxes. verse 13, later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is on it and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. We're gonna see in this interaction, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding about allegiances. And they ask a really good question, the one that, that, that Christians must wrestle through. What should my allegiances be as a, as a Christian and a follower of Jesus as Lord and King? What should my relationship be to the government? And this question brings together a sort of strange bedfellows. Um, we see a uniting of the the Pharisees and the Herodians and and see that the Pharisees were this ultra right-wing, ultra conservative leader in their day. All the rules, all the time was kind of what they were known for. They hated Jesus because he pushed back against their rules for the sake of rules. He questioned their authority like we saw in the last parable He called into question, not their rule following, but their hearts and their motives. And at one point he referred to them as whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of death on the inside. And yet he brings together the other end of the spectrum with the Herodians. And they're a group that we don't hear a lot about, but they were the more liberal left-wing party of the day. They supported big government. They were, so they supported Herod the Great and his authority uh, gave them authority. And, and so Jesus to teach against uh, supporting him would put their position in, in question. So here's two groups of people. They couldn't agree politically, but man, they sure could agree about Jesus. Left wing, right wing, and they both hated him. Jesus was a, a uniter and a divider, not a divider. He kept the two, he brought the two sides together. Both sides hated him equally. And they began to flatter him. Verse 14, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I mean, they just wanted to hear from him because he was so wise and he teaches the truth and he stands by his convictions and that's why they're there, right? And we'll tell you, the Bible warns about flattery. It doesn't say anything good about it. In Psalm, it says this, not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they tell lies. Proverbs echoes something similar. A lying tongue hates those it hurts. A flattering mouth works ruin. And I think that the deepest of all ironies is they say this, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They say this to the same guy that they're going to crucify in several days for blaspheming God. I think there is a good biblical warning to watch out for people who flatter. It's clearly insincere on their part. They're clearly trying to set Jesus up and catch him off guard. And and the question was good enough. They didn't have to flatter him. Uh, They put him in a yes or a no situation, an either or at uh, either and or scenario, and they, they try to pin him down on a specific answer. Because either way that Jesus answers this question gets him in trouble. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Because see, at this time Jerusalem was under the Roman authority and the Roman occupation. The religious leaders of that time saw support of the emperor through taxes as funding their oppressors. Every dollar you pay goes to fund the military machine that is oppressing the Jewish people. So to pay, to say, yes, you should pay your taxes ran the risk of angering those, the the religious leaders that were in opposition to the Roman occupation. But saying not to pay your taxes would have been seen as a direct rejection of Roman authority, and it would have put Jesus as an opponent of the political elite who derived their power from Rome. So groups like the Herodians and others, it would have brought him into direct confrontation with them. So we see he's in a a, a lose-lose situation. I think we see the wisdom in Jesus and how well he rejected the premise of their question and I would say Christians, there is wisdom that we can learn from this, that we would do well from his thoughtful response. Because maybe you find yourselves in conversations with people and, and they want you to speak on God's behalf in black and white, yes and no, is he this or is he that? But the more we learn about our God, there's, there's nuance. There's wisdom and application of God's scriptures. And we have to be careful not to find ourselves in lose-lose, yes or no, either or situations. And if we aren't thoughtful in our conversations with others, we will find ourselves walking right into sticky situations that Jesus wisely avoided. Because he does go on to answer their question. He just doesn't do it in a way that allows them to run with either narrative that they already had planned to catch him in. Or 17, then Jesus said to him, give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's? And to God, what is God's? See, Christians have a duty to the government, but this is always balanced by an even greater duty to God. And that's what we see here from Jesus. He asked, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Whose money is it? Where does it come from? Give it back to him. As Christian citizens, Jesus tells us to pay what is due. We don't get to just take from a system without contributing to the system. I don't love paying taxes. I don't high five my wife when we complete our taxes at the end of the year. I don't know if you do, but I don't love paying my property taxes and seeing that come out of my bank account. But as a Christian, I recognize that I am part of a community. And I want our teachers to be paid a good salary. And I want our police officers to be paid a good salary. And I I want those people to do the jobs that we have asked them to do. Now, I disagree with lots of things that government, local and, and otherwise spend their money on, but I also bring my expectations to them, my demands of them as a citizen. Shouldn't they be able to have demands on us? Now, it can be a lot easier for some of us at certain times to obey uh, the government, its laws and its policies, when the winds of democracy are sort of blowing in our favor. What about when you don't agree? Is this truth from Jesus situational? See, Jesus doesn't give us an out. He doesn't say this only applies when you voted for the guy in charge. Now, we recognize that, that, that... support of the government is not tacit approval of everything that they do. It's not a blanket endorsement. But we as Christians are held accountable for what we do individually. And governmental leaders and those in authority will stand before God and be accountable for the decisions and the policies and the things that they do. Jesus wasn't saying this during a time when it was really easy to support the government, if you're familiar with the politics back then. Paul goes on, echoes the same things about supporting those that God has placed in authority. And at that point, the politics have gotten even worse. We're not going to go through and ask you what your opinion is on current presidents and and a laundry list of, of previous presidents. But if given the option to pick one of them or Nero, Right? And yet at no point did Jesus or Paul say, not my emperor. I think it's best to put it this way. We as Christians are called to obey the government as long as we can. Jesus acknowledges the authority and legitimacy of human government. He's not an anarchist. He acknowledges the state's right to levy tax, but he also puts government's legitimate authority under the authority that God has toward man. Our duty to the government should not and cannot interfere with our duty to our creator, to our savior, to our God. Early in the book of Acts, we see Peter and the apostles and they're running into a conflict with some some local authorities and they speak to, to this hierarchy. We must obey God rather than human beings, they said. And Jesus teaches this, but he says, give to Caesar what is his, give to God what is his, which asks an interesting question. What is he calling on us there? What is it that's his that we are expected to give to God? I think we see this rooted back in the creation narrative. Humans are created in the image of God. We are told that we are image bearers of God. So to give to him what is rightfully his is to give to him what he made and he owns. And that would be control of our entire lives. Friedrich Bonhoeffer, I like what he said. He puts it plainly about God's calling on each and every follower of his. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He doesn't ask for part of us. He asks for all of us. And in light of that, our W-2s and our tax forms don't seem like the biggest thing. See, Jesus puts Caesar in his place and he places God where he rightfully belongs as well. Human leadership will fail us. It has throughout history and it will into the future. And human leadership never can save us. But yet a sovereign God uses them as he sees fit as part of his plan of redemption in ways that I don't think we will ever fully understand, certainly not this side of eternity. I think we can honor God through our duty as citizens with a remembrance and an understanding that we are called to a higher calling as well, a higher citizenship. See, Christians, our citizenship is not celebrated on the 4th of July. Our citizenship is celebrated on Easter Sunday when we remember the empty tomb and the risen Savior. Amen? Amen. Jesus wasn't done. He keeps going. I think there was like a line around the block and a take a ticket number kind of thing, and there. He's working through number two, and number three. is like, is it our turn yet? Do we, do we get a shot? Jesus gives him a shot. Verse 18, we're going to see that he's going to correct their misunderstanding about the resurrection. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first one married and died without leaving any children and the second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children and in the same way with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So Here are the Sadducees, they they take their their shot. Maybe they were feeling left out like the other guys got to ask all the good questions, but they cook up this, this absurd situation to create a controversy around Jesus and disprove what he's saying about resurrection. They were a unique group. They had some strong political influence as well as they had influence in the temple but they only saw the first five books, the the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the, the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative from God. And so they took everything that they thought that they needed to know about God from just those five books. And because of this, they did not believe in immortality. They did not believe in a future bodily resurrection. They thought that once the body dies, the soul goes with it, the soul ends. So they looked at Jesus that talked about the resurrection and they said, no way. So they use this, this question about this something called levirate marriage. And, and we see it taught from Moses. We see it in the book of Deuteronomy and the scriptures that they would have been familiar with. Deuteronomy 25, picking up in verse five says this, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son that she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So this was instructions from God to the nation of Israel. And we see an emphasis placed on family and the family line that was very important. God made this provision so that the family line could be continued for someone who died without a male heir to continue the line this person had an unmarried brother, it was that brother's duty to marry his sister-in-law and produce with her an heir um, so that the brother's name could continue on, his legacy, his lineage, okay? Now, I have an unmarried brother and I don't have any sons. Um, we haven't had this conversation yet, but if <laughs> if you're listening online, um, call me. Um, I guess if this ever comes up, I'm not really around to weigh in on it, but I'm gonna think we're gonna pass, just saying. Uh, but back then that was the system. That was what God had created to, to pass along inheritance and property rights and, and family leadership. And it was an important part uh, kind of of their society. So the Sadducees bring up this question and ask, what would happen if a woman went through this process, not just once, but several times? And they're trying to make the point that, well, you can't be married to seven guys in heaven. That's absurd, right? Sort of the opposite of sister wives. We're not talking about, you know, brother husbands. And they're saying, this just isn't fit, right? This proves how ridiculous the idea of resurrection is because if the situation were to happen, your system doesn't work, right? But first, I have a couple of questions before we get to Jesus's response. You've heard the old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? We're going a bit beyond twice here with with this woman. Uh, At the death of which husband, do we begin to put together the puzzle pieces where the only connecting link is marriage to this woman? Am I the only, just me? Okay. I think we're gonna have to come up with like a new sort of proverb uh, that speaks to situations like this. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times or more, and we need to start discussing patterns of toxic behavior and the potential that we might have a suicidal maniac on our hands. Like, <laughs> But thankfully, Jesus isn't as easily distracted as I am, and uh, he keeps us on task. But you had to think it a little bit too, right? All right. Verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So he teaches them, you don't understand the resurrection because you don't understand the scriptures. And Jesus in his wisdom takes them back to what they know. He, he goes back to Exodus chapter three that would have fallen within their, their five books that they would have listened to. He takes them back to an interaction between Moses and God at the burning bush. God responded, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God, God of Jacob. He spoke to each of them in the present tense. They died a long time ago in their physical bodies, but they did not cease to exist. See, God doesn't refer to them as, I was their God. He says, I am their God. He goes to the part of the Bible to argue with them about the resurrection that that they would listen to and that they would hear. And he says, "You you don't know it. But the resurrection is still something that causes many people questions today. Maybe you sit here and, and still wrestle with questions about what will life be like after death and what is the resurrection and what is the new heaven and the new earth. And I will tell you the Bible tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. Uh, it's fun to, to talk with somebody that, that's curious about the resurrection and curious about heaven and, and share with them the things that you're excited about as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, excited about spending time with God eternally And yet we have to acknowledge, there may be questions that we have that we don't have every single specific answer to. It can be frustrating as we think of eternity, there are things that we aren't told that maybe we would want to know. And this question about marriage is a good question. I don't think he's mad at them for the question. And he actually uses it as a teaching opportunity. If marriage is ordained by God, if it's the coming together of two people to become one flesh in God's eyes, won't that continue into heaven if it's ordained by God? And so they ask a really good question. But Jesus tells them this in verse 25. He tells them, no. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. I think it's good to note there. It doesn't say be uh, angels in heaven, but it says we will be like angels in heaven. There is some uh, something about us that will be like them, that they, they don't die uh, in heaven. They don't need to reproduce in heaven. And so there will be some elements of that in our resurrection bodies that will be like the angels. We will not marry. Now, if you're married and or hope to be married and depending on your relationship with your spouse, that can be a really disappointing truth, right? But I would say when we think of heaven and are disappointed, I think it shows our inability to grasp the goodness and blessing of what God has in store for us. I can say this confidently for the married and the unmarried alike. No one will be disappointed in any way when they get to heaven. Now, I love my wife. Um, We've been married for a bit now. We're we're gonna be celebrating 19 years uh, together this summer. Um, That's a lot of time together. She's put up with me for a long time. Bless her heart, you know? I hope that we get to spend a lot more years together. Uh, That would be my desire. And yet part of me has a hard time picturing heaven not married to her, that her is my wife. But we're told that our souls are eternal. Uh, we're, We're not given the impression that dying is like erasing the hard drive and starting over again. I'll still be me, and she will still be her, and, but we will not be in a marriage relationship in heaven. Not in the earthly sense that we understand marriage to be now. And, and for some, that's an, an upsetting truth. But here's what I would come back to. We would expect a great God to prepare a great heaven. And we get a picture in in Revelation 21, and and it'll it'll give us some answers and probably create 14 new questions, because that's what Revelation is good at. Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, we can place our trust in Jesus for our salvation but then think heaven's gonna disappoint us? Study your Bible, Christian. That's not what we find. (coughs) Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but it tells us more than enough to long for our time in the presence of our Savior. I think the question that we have to sort of ask is, do we let Scripture be our guide? Or do we bring preconceived conclusions that guide us how to interpret Scripture? See the difference? Does Scripture tell us what to conclude or do we tell Scripture what we want it to conclude? Because God has given us the answers to the questions that we have. He has given us the instructions that we need to live a life of righteousness and a life of joy, and we find those in the Scripture. And we just have to let it be our guide in how we live our lives. You see, in the first parable, we saw a group of people that, that thought that they could get the outcome that they wanted if, if they took things into their own hands and killed the son of the landowner. And yet, if they knew their Bible, if they knew the scriptures, they would see the seeds of the gospel planted in Genesis chapter three, that flourish to the point of Jesus where the creator God already had a plan in store to redeem and rescue mankind. See, the second conversation, they they try to get in this battle between earthly authorities and heavenly allegiances and overlook the reality that we're taught throughout all of scripture, that God is in control of everything. And we are to worry less about the actions of others and focus on what we are in control of, and that is our lives and our hearts. And the third conversation that we saw this morning highlights our love for this present world and and it is a good blessing from God, but it fails to grasp the goodness of a God that says he's going to prepare a place for us. And will I trust him when he says that I wanna be there? Or will I take my earthly expectations to him and say, God, live up to these? And God says, trust me see, we have the Bible. It is God's instructions to us to live in this world in ways that bring him honor and glory. And we challenge you to know it and then to follow it. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, this world is complicated and uh, it seems to be growing more and more complicated day by day and week by week. And Lord, I find great comfort when I encounter you in your scriptures, when I encounter the creator of this universe. The more I read about you and your word, Lord, the the more hope that I find. And Lord, the more I read about me in scripture, maybe the the sadder I get at times, Um, because humanity is broken. We have wandered away from our creator. But you knew that. You had intended to send your son to restore us, to redeem us, Lord, if we would be willing to place our hope and our trust in him as our Lord and our savior. And Lord, this story is not just told on one page of scripture, but it's told from the front cover to the back page. Uh, Lord, your love for us and your plan for humanity. You are good. Help us to trust you. You have revealed yourself. Help us to find you. You have guided us. Help us to follow you. We ask for your help in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.